the book of Exodus and chapter 4. Exodus chapter 4, and we'll begin to read at verse 1. This is the word of God. Moses answered, What if they do not believe me, or listen to me, and say, The Lord did not appear to you? Then the Lord said to him, What is that in your hand? A staff, he replied. The Lord said, Throw it on the ground. Moses threw it on the ground, and it became a snake, and he ran from it. The Lord said to him, Reach out your hand and take it by the tail. So Moses reached out and took hold of the snake, and it turned back into a staff in his hand. This, said the Lord, is so that they may believe the Lord, the God of their fathers, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, the God of Jacob, has appeared to you. Then the Lord said, put your hand inside your cloak. So Moses put his hand into his cloak. And when he took it out, it was leprous, like snow. Now put it back into your cloak, he said. So Moses put his hand back into his cloak. And when he took it out, it was restored like the rest of his flesh. And the Lord said, if they do not believe you or pay attention to the first miraculous sign, they may believe the second. But if they do not believe these two signs or listen to you, take some water from the Nile and pour it onto the dry ground. The water you take from the river will become blood on the ground. Moses said to the Lord, O Lord, I've never been eloquent, neither in the past, nor since you have spoken to your servant. I am slow of speech and tongue. The Lord said to him, Who gave man his mouth? Who makes him deaf or mute? Who gives him sight or makes him blind? Is it not I, the Lord? Now go, and I will help you speak, and will teach you what to say. But Moses said, O Lord, please, send someone else to do it. Then the Lord's anger burned against Moses, and he said, What about your brother, Aaron the Levite? I know he can speak well. He is already on his way to meet you, and his heart will be glad when he sees you. You will speak to him and put words in his mouth. I will help both of you speak and will teach you what to do. He will speak to the people for you, 
and it will be as if he were your mouth and as if you were God to him. Take this staff in your hand so that you can perform miraculous signs with it. Then Moses went back to Jethro, his father-in-law, and said to him, Let me go back to my own people in Egypt to see if any of them are still alive. Jethro said, Go, and I wish you well. Now the Lord had said to Moses in Midian, Go back to Egypt, for all the men who wanted to kill you are dead. So Moses took his wife and sons and put them on a donkey and started back to Egypt. And he took the staff of God in his hand. The Lord said to Moses, when you return to Egypt, see that you perform before Pharaoh all the wonders I have given you the power to do. But I will harden his heart so that he will not let his people go. And say to Pharaoh, this is what the Lord says. Israel is my firstborn son. I told you, let my son go so that he may worship me. But you refused to let him go. So I will kill your firstborn son. At a lodging place on the way, the Lord met Moses and was about to kill him. But Zipporah took a flint knife, cut off her son's foreskin and touched Moses' feet with it. Surely you are a bridegroom of blood to me, she said. So the Lord let him alone. At that time, she said, bridegroom of blood, referring to circumcision. The Lord said to Aaron, go into the desert to meet Moses. So he met Moses at the mountain of God and kissed him. Moses told Aaron everything the Lord had sent him to say. It was also about the miraculous signs that he commanded him to perform. Moses and Aaron brought together all the elders of Israel, Israelites. And Aaron told them everything the Lord had said to Moses. And he also performed the signs before the people. And they believed. And when they heard that the Lord was concerned about them and had seen their misery, they bowed down and worshipped. So can you turn with me then to the passage that we read, uh, but particularly uh, verses 18 and onwards to the, to the end of the chapter. The father of the 18th century uh, Presbyterian uh, Bible commentator Matthew Henry was a Puritan preacher 
uh, by the name of Philip Henry. And Philip Henry was uh, someone who uh, lived at a time of great persecution and suffered greatly for the cause of the gospel. Philip Henry said this, He is no fool who parts with that which he cannot keep when he is sure to be recompensed with that which he cannot lose. Almost three centuries later, a missionary by the name of Jim Elliot would uh, paraphrase Henry's words. And as he uh, wrote in his uh, journals before heading deep into the Ecuadorian jungle in search of a tribe known to the world as the Orca Indians, Jim Elliot wrote this. He is no fool who gives what he cannot keep to gain what he cannot lose. Elliot was uh, announcing his, his resolve in this missionary uh, expedition to surrender himself wholly to the task that his Lord had given him. And knowing whatever the cost was, that that would be far outweighed by the reward of following his Lord and Master. Now, as you may know, on first contact with the Orca Indians, Elliot was called upon to make the ultimate price. His life was taken from him. Uh, he, uh, along with uh, his team, uh, Roger Uderin, Pete Fleming, and Nat Saint, were speared to death, martyred for the, for the gospel, but gladly and willingly gave what they could not keep, their lives, that they might gain what they could not lose. Eternal relationship, living relationship with the Lord our God. And the principle there, the principle both in terms of what Philip Henry was saying what Jim Elliot and undoubtedly his friends and colleagues said and what we see in this passage in relation to Moses and what he does is a radical surrender to the call and commands of our Lord and Saviour Jesus Christ. A complete, whole-hearted, absolute surrender to Jesus as King. 
Why do I say that's radical? Well, it's certainly far from the current culture that we find ourselves in. Remember that what we're hoping to do in this kind of series of, of sermons as we work through this, this year is, is, is look at, well, how do we as Christians live in this year that's one of recovery? Getting back to whatever is going to pass for normal. Well, what those who are not believers and are in this, this culture will say, well, what you've got to be is authentic. You have to find your authentic self. Do what pleases you. What makes you happy, both in your personal life, in, in marriage, in, in work, in college? Do what makes you happy. Don't accept the bonds of anybody else. Well, the gospel goes against that. It is counter-cultural. And it says there are obligations. There are ties. Those ties are joyful and they're for your good. They do exist. So you remember that, that Moses was, was raised as a, as a prince in Egypt. He chose to identify with his own people. And then he, he intervenes in the defense of his people and he kills uh, an Egyptian taskmaster. And he flees. And he spends the next 40 years in Midian, where we pick up his story at this point. There he, he marries Zipporah, the daughter of Jethro, the high priest of Midian. And he serves there, tending his, his father-in-law's flocks. He experiences the burning bush. God meets him there, confronts him, humbles him, and calls him into service. Moses was going to be sent back into Egypt to be the human instrument of God. The means by which God would deliver his covenant people from bondage and from slavery. So we pick up the story in verse 18. And it falls into three sections. All of which are echoed by that quote of both Philip Henry and Jim Elliot. And should mark every one of us who claims to be a Christian. And should mark every one of us, particularly as we face this coming year. In the first verses, verses 18 to 23, there are the claims of radical commitment. In verses 24 to 26, there is the danger of delayed disobedience. 
And then from verses 27 to 31, the fruit of faithful service. The claims of radical commitment, the danger of delayed obedience, and the fruit of faithful service. So let's look then first at that section from verses 18 to 23. The claims of radical commitment. Now, since that call of God, even in the remarkable circumstances of the burning bush, Moses has been arguing. Moses has been arguing with God. I don't know what to say, he says. Nobody's going to believe me. Who's going to believe me when I tell them? I'm, I'm not a good public speaker. I'm, I'm, I'm a poor speaker. I'm not equipped for this job. Please, please send, send somebody else. All of these objections... Moses puts before God. And God responds with the abundant provision of his grace. And he promises Moses his presence and leaves Moses without any excuse whatsoever. God has him cornered, as it were. He can't go anywhere. His path of duty is clear. His calling is crystal clear. He must go back to Egypt. And God will go with him. And now, in verse 18, the time has come to match words with action. You see how they how they unfold there. So he goes to his father-in-law. He speaks to Jethro. And he says, please, please let me go back. Let me go back to my brothers in Egypt to see whether they are still alive. And Jethro gives him permission. You see the consequence, even in those early words of Moses, that conversation, short conversation between Moses and Jethro, there are consequences. Moses has been in Midian now for 40 years. That's an entire career as a shepherd. He's undoubtedly, we know he's got family. He's, he's married into Jethro's family. But he's got a home there. He's got friends there. But in calling upon him to do what God wants him to do, he's taking leave of his father-in-law. He's taking leave of the wider family there in Midian. He's taking leave of his home. There's a pathos 
in those words. Family bonds brought under pressure because Moses seeks to be obedient to God's call. Now, looking at the context of this entire passage, there's a short um, comment in verse 19. So he's asked, he's asked Jethro permission. That permission has been, has been given. And then in verse 19, we read this. Now the Lord had said to Moses in Midian, Go back to Egypt, for all the men who wanted to kill you are dead. I don't think it's too far to say, within the context of this passage, that God has to come to him again. He's still in Midian. He's had the command of God. But where does verse 19 find him? Finds him still in Midian. Midian. Perhaps he's found excuses to delay it a little longer. Maybe the wider family, maybe friends, and this is quite natural, isn't it? Well, look, look, before you go back, before you go to, to Egypt, and we wish you well, but, but come and stay with us. God has told him go. But we find him in verse 19, still in Midian. How like us he is. How much are we like him? That our obedience comes in fits and starts. We get excited about our Christian life. We may go to a conference or we may go to camp or whatever the case and come back and we're full of zeal. And then maybe a couple of months later, it's more of a struggle. We've all experienced that, haven't we? But this is the word of God. So God has given us a message out of, out of this, and he's also giving us parallels. He's also showing us Pictures. So we have Moses' obedience here that comes in fits and starts. He knows it's going to be a challenging, demanding, costly mission. His obedience is slow. It's, it's like us. It's, it's, it's on, it's off again. But God is also pointing to someone else who didn't, didn't hesitate who accomplished that final exodus mission and redemption of all of those who are in slavery and bondage to sin. Pointing to our Lord and Savior, who did not hesitate, who even in that garden of Gethsemane, in the shadow, in the very shadow of the cross, said with all the pressure exerted upon him at that time not my will but yours be done yes if 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 that cup will be passed but but no 
competent. No hesitation. No delay. Not my will, but yours be done. And then he went the way of the cross. Moses here is a reluctant type of saviour. But our Redeemer, our Lord, bore the greatest cost with gladness so that we might be saved. So after much uh, prodding and pushing from God, he begins the return journey to Egypt. He knew the, the sense of danger and potential risks involved in that. His delay certainly seems to imply that, and it's understandable. But they're all involved as a family. This isn't one individual embarking upon a mission. But his family is involved. They all, they, they, they load up the donkey and they go from Midian to Egypt. The cost of discipleship, you see, is, is not something abstract. It's not something that's, that's some sort of personal pilgrimage. It is something real. It is something that is very often paid in those places where our lives and its demands are the most painful. Our family, those close to us, all has to come under the lordship of our Saviour. Now, any of you who have had any experience of teenage children, particularly maybe later teenage children, those of you uh, who haven't, I'm not looking in a particular direction, those of you who haven't, you will. You will experience this. That you're having what might politely be termed a conversation with your children and they turn to you and they say it's none of your business I'm an adult I'm, 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 a, I'm a late teenager it's none of your business I guess there's an element of truth in that isn't it there's that tension between parent and, and child as they, as they grow up and, and, and become an adult so it's natural in that sense However, applying that to ourselves and applying to that if we are Christians in our Christian walk, that has no place in our relationship with Christ. There are no no-go areas in our walk with God. If we are a disciple, then the claims that God has over us in terms of lordship, over our future, over our family, over our finances, over our hopes, over our dreams, are his. 
There is a reason why that we use that quote from the, the first question of the Heidelberg Catechism so many times. For me, it's outside of the word of God. It's, it, it, it's, it's one of the finest words, sentences, paragraphs that have been crafted to put together, which sums up the Christian life. What's our only comfort in life and death? That you are not your own. That you belong to the Lord your God. You have been bought with a price. The Lordship claims of our God and of our Saviour are total, my friend. And if we are his, our identity has changed. We are now just as as Moses with all his faults. We are now an instrument of God carrying out his will in relation to our lives and how that impacts upon others. God can do, has done throughout the history of redemption, great things with, to use the illustration of the children's talk this morning, with poor clay. That's his will. That's what he intends this glorious gospel to be as it is applied to us. And Moses is told what that that is. Some of it is a bit worrying. It's It's not bread and roses, not by any stretch. It's not necessarily going to make him happy. So you go back to Egypt and you tell Pharaoh. But Pharaoh's not going to listen. He's not going to listen to you at all. And there's going to be huge pain before you come out of that land again. And as we've seen, haven't we, in the last couple of couple of weeks, you're only just going to see the land that I've promised you and my people. Yes, there's uh, the great um, joy of 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 witnessing and seeing people coming into the church through God alone. There's also our witness before an unbelieving world. Remember remember what Paul says? Who, Who is sufficient for these things? To one we are the aroma of life unto life and death unto death to the other. What does that mean? Well, he's got in mind a Roman triumph. So when, when the Roman army uh, conquered a, a region, the legions would come back and they would be, they'd be granted a triumph, which was the ability to march through Rome, particularly through the centre of Rome and the, and the Senate and the Forum. And the crowds would, would throw petals on the, on the ground 
And as the triumphant legion would go over these petals, well, this, this sweet aroma would come up from the crushed flowers. And, and to, the, to Romans, to those people watching, well, that would be great joy. Look how, how great our legions coming back from victory, from conquering. But in that parade, in that triumph, in cages at the back are the slaves. Slaves who will be later put to death. They're smelling the same aroma. But to them, it's the aroma of death. And that's what God is saying, isn't he? Preach the gospel. And yes, thank God that, that through the, uh, this, this poor agency, men and women, boys and girls will be called. But not all. Not all. But you still preach. You still live the gospel faithfully. Showing the work of God in your life. But then we see the danger of delayed obedience. It's a difficult passage, this passage. So often, don't we, in our daily readings, we, we, we uh, understandably at times, flick through things. But in this passage, there's, there's little phrases that, that give us hints of what's going on. And then there's this, this perplexing little story, little, little uh, aside recorded for us in verses 24 to 26. What do we read there? Well, in verse 24, we read this. At a lodging place on the way, the Lord met Moses and was about to kill him. Does not pull us up? Like rains us? Well, what's, what's going on here? You, 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 Moses, you, you've, you've been obedient. You may have been a bit reluctant, but now, now you're on your way and, and you're, you're in this, this, this lodging house, in this inn, on the way back to Egypt, doing, doing what God commands you to do. And yet we read, the Lord met Moses and was about to kill him. Well, what's going on here? Well, Zipporah, the, the Midianite wife, she seems to know. It, it looks like one of, of uh, Moses' two sons uh, is uncircumcised. The sign of the covenant in the Old Testament. Maybe in those 40 years, Moses and Zipporah thought, well, we'll, we'll get round to it. We, we know we should do it. We know that's what God has, has commanded. That's what the covenant people ought to do before, before God. But we're in Midian. So 
all right, nobody will notice. When in Rome, do what the Romans do. It's no big deal, maybe they thought. We'll, we'll get round to it. But now Moses is left in no doubt about how intolerable in the sight of God this oversight has been being. God meant this to be a covenant and an act of mercy to save his people. It is stipulated by the law. Moses should have obeyed. It was not to be neglected. But Zipporah gets this. And he carries, and she, I'm sorry, carries out the act. Moses is being taught here, just as we are, can't play fast and loose with the commands of God. Cannot play fast and loose with the commands of God. So Zipporah carries out this this act, this uh, vicarious act on Moses' behalf. And then she says, you're a bridegroom of blood to me. I confess, I don't really know what that means. 